welcome to the Dragon's Den podcast. I am your host, Austin Matra, and today it's just going to be me. I wanted to use this week to go and talk about a lot of things pertaining to the sport industry, such as the Rays' new stadium, the situation in Chicago with their new quarterback, coaches, etc., and the debate that is raging on between grass versus turf fields as a number of things. So I wanted to get it off, start this thing off with the, the debate on grass versus turf fields. A lot of debate has raged on, you know, over the course of a couple of years with a couple of major injuries at MetLife Stadium, notably with Sterling Shepard tearing his ACL, I believe, and Aaron Rodgers, his Achilles most notably. And players have begun to call for lots of teams to get a grass field moving forward. And the issue with that is the NFL claims that there's not really a strong correlation between turf and grass injuries. So there have been some independent studies going on. And what they've found is the two stadiums that have the most injuries per game are actually grass stadiums, which I found quite interesting. Allegiant Stadium and Mile High Stadium in Denver. But this data goes from 2017 to 2022. So Allegiant Stadium has played much less games, so they don't have as nearly a good sample size as the other teams. And in Power Field and Mile High, a multitude of other problems when they come to play in Denver due to the altitude and other things. And this is just injuries per game in general, all injuries. So rounding out the top 10 though, seven of the top 10 teams are turf. The only other grass field being in there is Lincoln Financial Field. So there are approximately 5.65 injuries per game on turf and 5.39 on grass in the last six seasons, about a 5% increase. So there's obviously some connection there between the two. And every other active stadium has 46 games worth of data in this study. Besides Bank of America Stadium, because they switched from grass to turf and then switched to back, interestingly, for the Gold Cup and used grass for that. So there's been a lot of different studies, and this one compiles them very well. Right now, I'm looking at turf injuries versus grass injuries on lower leg injuries. And turf has approximately 2.39 per game compared to grasses 2.35. There seems to be more non-contact injuries on grass than turf and non-contact lower injuries is a fraction higher on grass as well. So if we consider injuries where the playing surface itself does the damage, where you make a lot more contact with the ground, there is a much stronger correlation. Turf has 0.88 injuries per game that make contact with the ground and grass has 0.82. And there's almost a 0.10% increase in head injuries overall on turf to grass. So that one sticks out to me a lot because of the violence of head collisions and injuries a lot of the time and how severe they are. You would want to have that kind of cushion and you want to protect these players' heads, you know, and there's a very strong correlation here. So it doesn't make sense to me why that happens. Non-contact injuries are very unpredictable. 
And the numbers are a lot the same, but a 13% increase in head injuries and a 7.3% in injuries due to contact with the ground between turf and grass is very significant compared to the other injuries. So it's very clear that grass is the superior playing option injury-wise. And Travis Kelsey, the star tight end of the Kansas City Chiefs, said this about his body when playing on turf. Every single step in the fourth quarter, you feel in the knees and in the joints and in the ankles. At least, this is just for me. I hate playing on turf. The ground's harder when you hit it, and some cleats grab it more. Some cleats sit on top of the turf differently to make it more of an unstable surface. There's a lot of star NFL players speaking out against turf. David Bakhtiari was very adamant on social media that they should get rid of turf after the Aaron Rodgers injury. And the Bank of America Stadium does this. They originally had a grass, and then in 2021, they decided to switch to turf. But as I previously mentioned, when the Gold Cup came into town, they brought grass for the soccer players, which begs the question, why would you do that for soccer players who only use the stadium a little bit, but not your team who's consistently using the same stadium? That doesn't make sense to me. So there just seems to be this struggle going on between a lot of players and the executives in this regard. And something has to be done soon because it seems to be reaching a breaking point with how fed up the players have become. They consistently demand that they want to play on grass and they see other people that are able to demand that, that and get away with it, but yet they're stuck on turf. So I think that eventually there, we will start to see a swing towards more grass fields. I used to prefer playing on turf, players. That was when I was very young. You know, as your body kind of gets older and these NFL players have been playing for so long, I'm sure something like grass is much more easier, easier for them to use. And I don't know when we're going to see it happen, but I think it'll happen soon. One more thing about the Bank of America Stadium is when they were on grass, they had the lowest injuries per game. Then again, it's not the biggest sample size. Oh, same with NRG Stadium, I believe. And when they were on turf, their injury rate went up significantly higher, almost by 0.5 a game. So there's definitely a correlation even in the same, right? I'd like to see a bigger sample size, but right now it's showing that even in the same stadium with all the, of the controls staying the same, that grass is significantly better than turf. So there has to be some kind of slip soon. And I hope it happens before more players begin to get hurt. You know, there was some devastating injuries this week too, you know, and these injuries can happen on all sorts of playing surfaces. You know, Nick Chubb tore his whole knee apart and that's just an injury of the game. But when you have a way to minimize uh, injuries and help player safety, you have to wonder why the league doesn't want to do that. After that, I wanted to move into another field, the Rays field. The Rays announced plans for a new $1.3 billion stadium in St. Petersburg, claiming our Rays are here to stay. This is big news for all Rays fans because they have been clamoring for a new stadium for a long time. Tropicana Fields 
is one of the dumps of the MLB. Often hard to get to for fans, not a, the, a great stadium. A lot of the times the upper decks can be shown to be empty or closed off. So I think this is a very good move for the Rays, for baseball in general. The Rays are one of those teams that has been fielding competitive teams a lot lately. So I think it's nice that they have a beautiful stadium to go along with their nice team. I was looking at some of the plans for the building and some of the detailed mock-ups are very nice. It seems to be a nice little dome as they were playing in before with two scoreboards in left center and right center, a couple different levels, three, three or four levels out in the outfield, some nice sweet boxes, and it just looks overall a lot cleaner, brighter than the stadium was. It's going to have approximately 30,000 seats and open in 2028. Now, that's very far in the future, so who knows how long they will actually be building the stadium for. It could be less, it could be a lot more, but hopefully they get it done soon because I don't like watching Rays games and having to see that stadium. And it's also good because if you'll recall a while ago, the Rays actually wanted to have two home stadiums almost. One in Canada and one down in Petersburg because they wouldn't let them renovate the stadium. And I think that it's good that we keep the, the Rays where they are. You know, wherever you have an established fan base is usually a good idea to keep your team there. And I think the Rays are, will really help build out their brands with this new stadium. You know, it's right in the middle of downtown. It looks like very easy to get to a fixed roof. They will be playing on a turf field, a nice pavilion design, 15 to 20 acres, a couple parking garages, and they're going to lease it for a 30-year lease agreement for options up to 40 years. So that means they're going to be stuck there for a long time, which will calm the nerves of a lot of fans who thought they may be leaving. And the entire investment in that district, which is known as the Historic Gas Plant District, is projected to be more than $6 billion. So this will provide a lot of new jobs and shops in that area and really boost up the economy there, which I think will be really cool. Really cool as in really good for the economy. The raise will pay over half of the $1.3 million price tag and be responsible, be responsible for any cost overruns. The agreement includes nearly 8 million square feet of mixed-use development that will surround the site of the Rays ballpark. And there are also plans for an African-American Museum of History on the site because that was an area of the neighborhood that was actually used just to segregate St. Petersburg a long time ago. So they want to make that part of the history and showcase the wrongdoings that happened back then. So I think this will be very good for St. Petersburg, offer a lot of development and really kind of help up the community there in the gas plant area. So I would like to see some more mock-ups coming along soon. It's expected to create about 4,500 construction jobs and about 15,000 annual jobs through Pinellas County down in Florida, which is no small number. 
even though those construction jobs are temporary, that's always good. And there seems to be a lot of office space, some housing along there too. And it just seems to be this whole very nice re reintegration project in the community. And I think that it'll be very good. This has been going on for about 15, 16 years. They were trying to get a deal in Tampa, you know, so I'm glad that this is finally over. Like I mentioned before, they wanted to split the team between St. Petersburg and Montreal was the team in Canada. Luckily, the MLB killed that. The construction, like I mentioned before, was expected to end in 2028, but they expect to begin construction late next year. So about a year from now. The team will continue to play at Tropicana until its lease with the city ends in 2020. The first phase of development in the new ballpark should be ready by opening day 20. Everything runs according to schedule. As you know, when ballparks are built and they're not down, there's lots of issues with them and there's often trouble getting materials or building delays. So I hope the stadium gets to be built before 2028 and hopefully I myself can get down and see a game in the old Tropicana field, even though it's not the nicest before it gets shut down. So I'll have to try to give that a run for my money. But I also wanted to speak on the saga of the Bears. The Bears were one of the off-season teams where everyone thought that they would come in and make some noise. Justin Fields got DJ Moore in the draft. They drafted some new tackles to really bolster up that line. And everyone thought the Bears would be a good team heading into the year. Right now, they're sitting at 0-2. They haven't won a game since Elon Musk bought Twitter and named it X. Not since the X name changed, but since he's bought Twitter. So it's been a very long time since they've won a game, and they just had one of the craziest 24-hour stretches that any GM would have to go through. Their left tackle is on injured reserve with a neck injury, which could be... At minimum four games, but it can continue a lot longer than that. Nick en Nick's injuries tend to be very serious in nature and offer a lot more rehabilitation time. Then, in another presser, Justin Fields accidentally blamed his robotic play style on the coach, where that's not a good look for any quarterback. You know, if it's true or not, you don't really want to be blaming coaching. Now, Justin Fields said he just wants to go out there and play ball. If that's the best way for a quarterback to act, I'm not necessarily sure. You know, they have to go to the line, make lots of checks and flow. But then again, coaching could just be telling him, hey, I want you to stick with this play no matter what and run it. So we don't know necessarily what Justin Fields was criticizing in its entirety. But I do believe that... Coaching may have something to do with it. Justin Fields has only had four designed QB runs through the first two games of the year, and that's basically what he's best at. It seems like the Bears are trying to make Justin Fields better by playing to his weaknesses almost, forcing him to get good at his weaknesses so he can develop them instead of playing to his strengths at this kind of awkward reversal of the roles there. And I don't really think that's the best way to go about it. So it's going to be very interesting to see how it goes from there. 
Justin Fields did walk those comments back and Ryan Poles this morning said, no one sees Justin Fields as a pointer finger at all. He just sees him as a young quarterback trying to figure it out in the leaves. You know, he also said he's had to balance his rare athleticism with knowing how to use the players around him and it's taking time. Lack of preseason reps due in part to O-lineman being out played a role as he didn't face a pass rushing candidate, you know. Camp is so much different than the actual game itself and running around and trying to play. So it's very interesting that, you know, they're trying, they didn't really try to recreate that in camp if they knew Justin Fields would have an issue with it. There's ways to mimic pressure and do these through drills. And they didn't seem to work on that, it looks like. So it's very confusing to me. Like I mentioned before, what, what they were doing with Justin Fields. Now, if you want to talk about something else that's confusing, I'd like to speak on the defensive coordinator struggles. The Bears have not had a good defense. The, they tried to get some big swings in free agency, signing a lot of uh, free agent linebackers to bolster the defense, getting Tremaine Edmonds, I believe, as one of the really big players to help them in free agency. And... It hasn't looked good for them so far. And their defensive coordinator was missing a couple days ago. This previous week, he did not call the plays because he was not present. Matt Eberflus calling the plays on defense because he was MIA. They were asked to comment yesterday about the coordinator status and the head coach declined to comment. And the issues yesterday seemed to be that it had nothing to do with his coaching. There seemed to be a big mystery in Chicago as to what was really going on behind the scenes. So I found it interesting when yesterday he suddenly resigned. He hadn't played. He's been in the league like two games this season, and he only really coordinated the defense for one of them. So, you know, everyone's frustrated with Eberflus. Their defensive coordinator was on the outs. And then there's a trouble on the offensive side. So the Bears, one of the teams that people thought would take a big step forward, don't look great at all. But then this morning, as well in that presser, he spoke on Alan Williams. He said, I don't have many details to add there. Hallis Hall being rated is completely false. Don't know where that came from. We've worked with Kevin Warren and George McCaskey and all our leadership to make sure we were handling it the right way and everything concluded yesterday. There doesn't seem to be a lot of information on what's going on with Alan Williams. No one really knows and wants to speak on what is going on because there seems to be some sort of investigation. So I don't really want to sit here and speculate on information that isn't true, but I have heard that his home got raided, I believe, was a rumor. And I hope that everything comes to a good conclusion and that justice will prevail in the end. I don't want anything to come in the way of this. I think the investigation should just run its course and not be that I don't want them to come to any conclusions and people to leak info that's fake just so that way they can get some clicks on the internet. And finally, one of the last things I wanted to talk on was the Detroit Lions. The Detroit Lions have made one of the greatest turnarounds in NFL history. 
They took Jared Goff, a quarterback who many thought was washed up, but turned him around, and they finally broke through last season. This season, they began the year off with beating Kansas City in Detroit. Uh, Kansas City in Kansas City, excuse me. And made a huge statement there. After last year, they came on very strong in the second half of the season and just barely missed the playoffs. Although last week they did lose a shootout barely in overtime to the Seahawks, they've shown a lot more promise. This, we need to be competing for a division championship this year. That's what him and, you know, the GM want to do. And they've really turned that team around. I didn't want to go into the details, but the Lions fired Matt Patricia in 2020 on Thanksgiving Day. Then they fined Dan Campbell the year after. And... Dan Campbell is one of those guys that everyone in the NFL seems to really like. He has a lot of hard work, determination, and a lot of fire to him. A lot of quotable quotes, he says, and a lot of charisma and spunk. It seems very interesting how he's come and taken over this team. He's given them a fire, that underdog mentality. And it's been very good for them so far. He was the New Orleans Saints tight ends coach before he got fired and he went all the way up to Campbell, who he went all the way up to Detroit where he used to play and has turned that team around in the past couple of years. You know, they hired Holmes as their GM on January 14th, 2021, hired Campbell less than a week later. And then they traded Stafford away and kind of began this rebuild. One of the first picks they got was Panay Sewell who's been a great pick for them at right tackle and has been killing it there, having very all-pro-like seasons. Aaron Glenn, a defensive coordinator, used to play cornerback for the Jets. Quarterbacks coach is Mark Brunel, who used to play. Wide receivers coach Antoine L. Antoine Randall L. And cornerbacks coach Dre Bly. They seem to be taking lots of players that used to play and using them as coaches. I don't know if that is what is leading to their success, but it tends to be working. A lot of these old players really are translating well into coaches. And I don't know if that's because they're able to necessarily relate more to the players and get more out of them, or they see something different from a player's perspective that they can bring to the table. It's very interesting how they've really built this team together. And last year they were able to draft at Aiden Hutchinson and a lot other, a lot more pieces to bring together and really solidify this team. It seems like one of those teams, they always mesh well together and don't really have a lot of off the field issues except for Jameson Williams being suspended for gambling for the first half of the year. But that isn't really a culture issue. That just seems to be something that happened. So the Lions really look like they have their stuff together. They got Amon Ross St. Brown as well of 2021 fourth round pick who bust onto the scene and, and is an amazing slot receiver. They got Jameer Gibbs this year in the first round running back. And he seems to be a very explosive weapon that they're easing him into. And I'm very excited to see where the Lions take this team. The rebuild has been a long time coming and I hope they're able to finish it off successfully. They've the coaches have coached the senior bowl. They've been on hard knocks. They've done a lot of 
different things and gotten the media to really cover the Lions a lot and forced them to almost with the way that they're playing and the way that they present themselves. So I hope they keep it going and there's a long season ahead of us. So we'll see how they end it off. And I wanted to bring up one more thing, which was Terry Pagula dissolving Pagula Sports and Entertainment and he's taking over as the Sabres president. Basically, what he seems to be doing is instead of having one group that oversees the Buffalo Bills and Buffalo Sabres, he's tending to split them up into a Bills staff and a Sabres staff. Why Pagula Sports and Entertainment is no more? They say it's merely eliminating too many staffers with overlapping duties. It seemed to be difficult for the employees to really know what to do. There's a lot of redundancies. So it doesn't seem to be anything necessarily nefarious or crazy. They just wanted to focus their business together and really separate the two teams so they can each do their own work and have their own hierarchy inside the system and work towards that common goal of promoting the teams and making sure they're great. It's kind of hard to have the same social media staff do a Bills game and then go do a Sabres game because it's very different content, hockey and football. So I think this will be good for them in the long run. This will be very cool to see how it means. And I think this also makes it easier for Vakula to sell the Sabres franchise because they aren't necessarily connected to the Bills anymore. And I don't necessarily think that, that will happen. Pagula will still be the president of both teams, but the Buffalo team is planning a series of arena renovations in the next few years, and their team has been getting much better. Pagula also eliminated jobs with the Sabres in 2020, tried to be more effective, efficient, and economic with them. And this maybe this aligns with those decisions very well. They bought the Sabres in February of 2021, and they haven't made the playoffs since then, but things seem to be looking out a lot for them. So I'm very excited to see what this means for the two teams going forward, if there's going to be any real noticeable difference in job hirings and social media work and everything in between. So that's just something to keep an eye on as the season starts to progress. This is Austin Mach. I'm signing off the Dragon's Den, and I hope to have you all back next week. Take care.